Welcome to Russian History Retold, episode number 1979-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2-1970-part-2
which was deluged in blood. No one knows how many died that day, but estimates claim that over 200 protesters and dozens of soldiers and policemen died that day. A mutiny of the Pavlovsky Guard occurred that evening, but that was squashed rather quickly with the ringleaders being sent to the Peter and Paul Fortress. The rest were confined to their barracks. It was a sample of things to come. The members of the Duma were meeting to try to get a grasp on what was going on. The president of the Duma, Mikhail Rodzienko, sent a message to Tsar Nicholas telling him of the chaos going on in the capital. Nicholas decided that an answer to the question of what to do was unnecessary. It is now March 1st, so let's look at what was going on in the rest of the world. In the United States, Woodrow Wilson is sworn in for his second term as president. The Zimmerman telegram is released to the public, and Puerto Ricans are granted U.S. citizenship. In Mexico, Carzana Carranza, excuse me, is elected president, and China terminated diplomatic relations with Germany. The war in Europe is still raging, but no major battles occurred, as everyone seemed to be entrenched in their positions. Monday, March 1st, would be known as Red Monday. Muriel Buchanan, daughter of the British Ambassador Sir George Buchanan, described Petrograd when she arrived at the train station at 8 o'clock in the morning. Quote, In the bleak, gray light of that early morning, the town looked inexpressibly desolate and deserted. The bare, ugly street leading up from the station with the dirty stucco houses on either side, seemed, after the snow-white peace of the country, somehow the very acme of dreariness. That dreariness would turn into a dark dread, a feeling that something bad and big was about to happen. At the Duma, Sir George Buchanan and French Ambassador Maurice Paleologue met with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Nikolai Pokrovsky. They were told that Nicholas had ordered troops to enter the city and restore order. This concerned the two foreigners, as they saw yet again that the Tsar had failed to try conciliation, instead trying repressive policies that had failed countless times in the past. As Buchanan wrote, quote, In 1789, 1830, in 1848, three French dynasties were overthrown because they were too late in realizing the significance and strength of the movement against them. What Nicholas and many of the ministers did not realize was that the soldiers in the army were as fed up with the government as the protesters in the streets. Slowly but surely, over the coming days, more and more soldiers would join what was now more than a protest. It was more than rioting. It was a full-blown revolution. As Helen Rapport writes in her book, Caught in the Revolution, quote, Maurice Paleologue had been dressing when, at around 8.30, he heard a prolonged din coming from the direction of the Latigny Bridge. He saw a regiment of men approaching a disorderly mob of people crossing from the Viborg side and anticipated a violent collision. But instead, 
the two bodies coalesced. The army was fraternizing with the revolt. Already a point had been reached that morning, where there would be no turning back. Officers of the Preobrzhinsky Regiment, the regiment founded by Peter the Great, were killed along with those of the Volinsky and Lithuanian regiments, as well as the 6th Engineer Battalion. The old arsenal was looted by the soldiers, the prison was opened, and those awaiting trial were freed and handed weapons. The prison, along with the district court, were set on fire. Not only were criminal records destroyed, but many historical records, dating back to the time of Catherine the Great, went up in flames. Remember our friend Donald Thompson? Well, he and his translator Boris were arrested by the police and put into a small cell. Shortly after they were incarcerated, a mob broke into the police station and they were freed. As Thompson recalled, quote, People were throwing their arms around Boris and me and kissing us, saying that we were free. Women were down on their knees hacking the bodies of the police to, bit, to bits. One woman was trying to tear somebody's face with her bare fingers. Soldiers, civilians, striking workers were milling around the streets, showing off their weapons. James Stinton Jones, a British engineer, wrote this about what he saw that day. Quote, Here would be a hooligan with an officer's sword fastened over his overcoat, a rifle in one hand and a revolver in the other. There, a small boy with a large butcher's knife on his shoulder. Close by, a workman could be seen awkwardly holding an officer's sword in one hand and a bayonet in the other. One man had two revolvers, another a rifle in one hand and a tramline cleaner in the other. A student with two rifles and a belt of machine gun bullets round his waist was walking beside another with a bayonet tied to the end of a stick. A drunken soldier had only the barrel of a rifle remaining, the stock having been broken off and forcing an entry into some shop. Children were being armed and began shooting at officers and pigeons. Chaos reigned supreme on Monday, February 27th, and it was just the beginning. By midday, 25,000 soldiers of various regiments joined forces with the people. It was not a good day to be a police officer, as many of them would be murdered if they came in contact with the now crazed mob. And let me just say something there. I'm going back a little bit in time. I know we were talking about March 1st, but we want to go back into the last days of February because so much was going on. And it's just to, to give you context of how angry the people were, the soldiers were. Everyone was fed up with the war, World War One, the fact that there was lacking food and fuel. And now this was, you know, this was a mob now. They they had it. Uh the target of the rioters, though, was not government officials, but it was the local police. The first buildings they attacked were the police stations, uh, where many had gone and barricaded themselves from the mob. I mean, most were overrun quickly with all the policemen butchered. Uh, Twelve stations were burned to the ground that Monday. Whenever a policeman was found outside, 
They were cornered and either shot, bayoneted, or clubbed to death. Some were tossed into holes in the river ice to drown. Dr. Joseph Clare, the pastor at the American Church in Petrograd, recorded, quote, I know a place where 30 or 40 policemen were pushed through a hole in the ice without as much as a stunning tap on the head. They were drowned like rats. Judges and policemen were even attacked in their own home, where they were looted by the mob. The chaos that ran rampant throughout the city was increasing by the minute. At the Tarib Palace, where the Duma was meeting, they were at a loss as to what to do, as there was a growing crowd outside. Duma President Rodzianko sent a desperate message to the Tsar asking for help. Nicholas responded, saying, he would be coming with troops to quell the riots. As you can see, Nicholas really had no clue as to what to do. He would act the way, I think, the way his father would have, and that's using force. And also because this was his Russia. I mean, he could do as he pleased. And this was a problem with Nicholas. He didn't want to think that the people had a voice. It was his voice and his voice alone that he thought was important. As Rappaport writes, quote, a 12-man provisional executive committee was eventually elected that evening to take control of the situation. One of its first acts was to order the arrest of the members of the Council of Ministers, the upper house of the Duma, and guardians of the old regime, who met at the Mariinsky Palace. Some of them had already tendered their resignations, including Prime Minister Nikolai Golitsyn, Others had gone into hiding, and revolutionary patrols were now searching for them. Now, you must be asking yourself, uh, we know what the outcome of this is, the Bolsheviks take control. So where were the Bolsheviks during this period? Surprisingly, they were nowhere to be found. Now, they claim that they were there, and they were the ones who were getting the people up and, you know, prepared for revolution, but in actuality, they weren't anywhere around in this February revolution. The main, more radical groups that were meeting, such as the Mensheviks and social revolutionaries, were around. Now, they were planning on creating the Petrograd Soviet of Workers and Soldiers Deputies. Their first call to action was asking that the people help feed the soldiers of those who had gone over to their side. Within hours, homes were opened to the men, restaurants were opened, and old men were handing out packs of cigarettes to the soldiers. Now, the Mensheviks and the social revolutionaries knew that if they were going to take over, they needed the soldiers on their sides. And by nightfall, over 65,000 soldiers, mostly from the Semenovsky and Ishmaelovsky regiments, had switched sides. They controlled most of the city except the Winter Palace, Admiralty, and General Staff buildings, which were guarded with what was left of loyal troops. Now, my grandfather would have been in the Admiralty building at that time. Uh, Tuesday, the 28th of February, fighting continued, sometimes between members of the same regiment. Many of the eyewitnesses to the Days of Revolution were members of various consulates that dotted the capital. 
they were forced to raise the flags of their countries in order to protect them from the angry mobs. One of the hotels that many foreigners stayed at, the Astoria, became a target of the rioters as a policeman was on the roof firing his machine gun at the crowd. Soldiers began firing at the man on the rooftop, some bullets hitting people standing at their windows, trying to see what was going on. What the mob really wanted was any and all Russian officers that were still loyal to the Tsar. If they found them and they resisted arrest, they were shot on the spot. If they didn't, they were shot in the courtyard. Only those who professed their loyalty to the revolution were allowed to live. After the capture of the last officer, the mob had one thing in mind left, and that was to find any stashed alcohol. They imagine getting all this alcohol, which was at some of these hotels, places like that. That's not a good mix when you have a, a mob like this that's angry and frustrated, and now they're going to be alcohol-fueled. Now, the British officers who were staying at the hotel had the forethought to destroy all of the wine and alcohol before the mob could get it. Some bottles of champagne and wine made it into the hands of some of the protesters, but others admonished them not to get drunk, as it would undo all of the work they had accomplished. Looting was now becoming another major problem in Petrograd. Almost every business was broken into. Much of this was done by the nearly 8,000 criminals who were liberated from the local jails. Bands of gangs roamed the streets, targeting the aristocrats and their families. If they came upon a family that remained in the city and had barricaded themselves in their homes, they were likely to be all killed if the mob made it inside. And that included women and children. Luckily for me, uh, well, my grandfather supposedly was in the Admiralty, but he uh, decided with my grandmother that it's time to get out of Petrograd uh, before things have gotten out of hand. And obviously, had they not, you would likely not be listening to this podcast, as I would never have been born. Tuesday the 28th of February 1917 marked the end of the most chaotic part of the revolution. The arsenal had been captured, most of the army was now on the side of the revolution, and even, quote, guard equipage commanded by Grand Duke Kirill, the cadet corps, and 350 officers of the General Staff College. Finally, even the garrison that had guarded the imperial family at Sarskoy Selo had joined them. More and more troops from outlying areas began to pour into the city, and join the revolution. The members of the Imperial Council were rounded up and sent to the Peter and Paul Fortress. Even Metropolitan Petrium, a friend of the despised Rasputin, was taken into custody. Things began to settle down in the city on March 1st. News was coming out of Moscow that the city was taken by the revolution quickly and easily. Emilia Denari a French journalist had this to say about what just occurred. Quote, you had to have lived here. You had to have seen the constraint impinging on all public life, the strict supervision by the police, their lack of goodwill, the spying, the informing, and everything feeling false and underhanded hanging in the air. 
slavery masquerading as liberty, in order to understand the joy which radiates in everyone's expression now. At last, this great people can breathe. They've cast off their chains, along with the weight that has been oppressing them for centuries. Everyone is cheering, smiling. And imagine what we know what happened the following year when the Bolsheviks t- took over. Those expressions of joy would turn into fear. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So where was Tsar Nicholas II, the target of so much of the anger of the mobs? He was in Piskov some 300 miles away. He tried to make it to Petrograd, but the rail lines had been sabotaged. Nicholas telegraphed Rodzianko, admitting that he was finally ready to concede some of his power to the Duma. Rodzianko responded, replying, quote, It is now time to abdicate. Envoys from the Duma, Alexander Guchkov and Vasily Shulgin, arrived in Piskov to meet with the Tsar. You see how clueless Nicholas is here. At the very end, when he thought, hey, maybe now I need to make a deal. Way too late. Way too late. It was over. So on March 2nd, Julian calendar, March 15th, Gregorian calendar, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated. The Romanov dynasty that had ruled Russia from February 21st, 1613, when the first Romanov, Michael, had taken the oath of office, was over. The provisional government, led initially by Prince Georgi Lvov, was now leading Russia. The tension between it and the Petrograd Soviet was apparent, but the two sides did agree to work together initially. Citizen Nicholas headed off to be with his family at the Alexander Palace, where they were already under house arrest. I'd like to read two quotes from the textbook, A History of Russia by Mark Steinberg, Nicholas Ryazanovsky. The first is from Russian historian William Chamberlain, quote, The collapse of the Romanov autocracy in March 1917 was one of the most leaderless, spontaneous, anonymous revolutions of all time. While almost every thoughtful observer in Russia in the winter of 1916-1917 foresaw the likelihood of the crash of the existing regime, no one, even among the revolutionary leaders, realized that the strikes and bread riots which broke out in Petrograd on March 8th would culminate in the mutiny of the garrison and the overthrow of the government four days later. The second is by Merle Feinsod, quote, The enemies of Bolshevism were numerous, but they were also weak, poorly organized, divided, and apathetic. The strategy of Lenin was calculated to emphasize their divisions, neutralize their opposition, and capitalize on their apathy. In 1902, in his work, What is to be Done?, Lenin had written, Give us the opportunity of revolutionaries, and we shall overturn the whole of Russia. On November 7th, 1917, the wish was fulfilled and the deed accomplished. I know that the last quote, again, is kind of jumping of the gun, but I felt it was important to share. We'll be seeing the issues with the opposition that Feinsod points out. Mike Duncan, the host of Revolutions podcast, does a masterful job of pointing out the weakness of the opposition 
their poor organization, how divided they were, and how apathetic so many of the Russian citizens were. And this is what allowed the Bolsheviks to eventually seize power. I hope to do justice to that high bar that Mike put out there. His series on the Russian Revolution, which he started in May of 2019, and I believe has just come to an end, goes into far more detail than I could ever hope to. Uh, give it a listen if you have the time. Uh, before I go, uh, I was interviewed on a podcast called Conspiranormal, and we talked about the uh, present Ukrainian-Russian crisis going on. Uh, it was a great interview between myself and the uh, hosts of Conspiranormal. I'm going to be doing another interview with another uh, podcaster, and he's the head of Great Histories. I'm going to be doing that uh, this coming Friday, and we'll see when it comes out, and I'll tell everybody. And it's going to be more about Catherine the Great, and he's doing something about the French Revolution. So we're going to be talking about Catherine, her discussions with people like Voltaire and Diderot, and what she thought about the French Revolution, and if there was anything that she had uh, said that might have spurred it on. So I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Join me next time as we return to March of 1917 and continue the story of the rise of Kerensky, the arrival of Lenin, and the tumultuous days that changed a nation. So, until next time, das vidanya y spasiba bolshoya.